Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hello, good morning. Or good afternoon. Wherever, whatever um, like time zone you are listening to this, then because it could be any time. And just a reminder: these lovely ladies are VTSs in oncology, which means they're so much smarter about oncology than I am. (laughs) Like I help diagnose things in internal medicine and then help turf them to oncology. (laughs) So (laughs) we appreciate that, (laughs) right? And sometimes I work hand in hand because you know there's some that that definitely cross over. But um, so this week we're talking about mast cell tumors, which is funny because I feel like this is when I was in school, this was the scary one that everybody freaked us out about. They're like, it's a mast cell tumor. And now I'm like, it's a mast cell tumor. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. I think it's because the touching. Yeah. You touch it, you make it angry. Make it angry. Yeah, definitely. So um, just a reminder, these are not yet race approved, but we are working on that, which is going to be super fun. Um, and then for now, definitely use it for self-study and just, you know, getting your oncology knowledge <laughs> on point. Um, and then we'll let you guys know once they're approved so we can get certificates. Um, but this week, yeah, we're, we're diving into mast cell tumors and so much histamine that, you know, loves to come out with, with the mast cell tumor. So, so much, so much histamine. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to let you guys run because I mean, I could tell you that my dog had one and that's about it. <laughs> okay. Maybe not. <laughs> I got a, I got a little bit more knowledge, but, but nobody wants to hear from me about mass health tumors. So, all right, ladies, <laughs> take it away. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned that you like to do all sorts of help diagnosing things in <laughs> our way. I really enjoy as an oncology technician, when I get to be like, it's not cancer. We need to send them to the internist. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I do prefer it because that means that in theory, they're less likely to die soon, hmm. right? <laughs> depending on what it is. But yeah. Yeah. Well, with mast cell tumors, what's really crazy is they can either do really well mm-hmm. or then there's grade three, which is its own beast. Uh, but we are going to get to what the difference is and why, but so mast cell tumors are literally just called that mast cell tumors. Um, they are made up of mast cells, but they're one of five round cell tumors. Um, the other ones are TVT's lymphoma, which is transmissible venereal tumor. Oh, I said that right. Woo. I'm on point. I was like, what the world? (laughs) Right. Um, TVT. Got it. Okay. Right. (laughs) That's what it is. Um, histiocytomas and melanoma. So those are our five and mast cell tumors are one of them. So it is of course different in dogs and cats because why wouldn't it be? Because cats. And <laughs> so in dogs, mast cell tumors account for about seven to 21% of all skin tumors. 
And then mm. 11 to 27% of all malignant skin tumors. So, you know, those little benign masses. And so of all those masses that show up on dogs, those lumpy, bumpy dogs, um, seven to about 20% of them are mast cell tumors. Wow. That's kind of crazy. Right. I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Cause I do see a lot of them, mm-hmm. but I guess I just didn't realize it's almost like a fifth to a quarter of them. Right. And I, I feel like we probably don't even see all of them because if they no. are small ones that, um, your, their regular vet has removed, just doing a mass removal, it's it's mm-hmm. grade one, it's all low grade and there's nothing to be done afterwards. We probably never see them. So I'm sure that accounts for also in here as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just crazy. So cats, we'll talk a little bit about the cats. Um, probably just as little, little statements in passing about like why it differs from the dog. Right. So for cats, um, the intestinal mast cell tumor, um, mm-hmm. that's the third most common feline GI tumor cats always like their internal stuff, right? Um, the, the top two are going to be lymphoma and adenocarcinoma, but then it's the second most common skin tumor. Um, 8% in great Britain, apparently, because you know, they get, but then it's 20% over here. So just showing you regional stuff matters. (laughs) And then, um, the splenic form is also common. Mm. That is one of the bigger ones that we do see in cats. And that accounts for 15% of all splenic pathology in cats. So whatever else may be going on in the spleen, 15% of it is due to mast cell tumors. Yeah. So, um, as usual, I'm going to let Jenny, who is much better at talking about <laughs> You're ridiculous. That's not true. You're, you're that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm happy to do it. Cause I, I actually love mast cell tumors. Um, as weird as that is, you know, I think if you're going to be an oncology technician, you have to pick some of your favorite cancers and some of your not so favorite cancers. Um, and mast cell tumors are one of the ones that interest me probably because one of my first patients had a intranasal mast cell tumor that extended Ooh. through the cribriform and into the brain. Um, so that was one of my, yeah, that was in my like first two weeks of work, um, in oncology. <laughs> In like and early you've never 2000. seen anything right. like it. <laughs> right, right. You know, You're like, this um, is what and, they do. No, <laughs> right, right. And so I was like, oh my goodness. Um, and then learning about mast cell tumors and seeing the really wide array of biologic behavior that these guys can have. Um, it's very interesting um, from a metabolic, from a science standpoint, but it's also interesting from a patient standpoint, because there are some of those patients that we see that are going to have long-term management of these really low grade, low um, aggressive nature mast cell tumors, and they can be managed for a really long time. And the thing about mast cells is that they exist normally, right? They are cells that have a normal function throughout the body. And and most of their normal function is part of the immune system is to um, their inflammation markers. So if there's inflammation present in the body, we can also see mast cells um, in that process as well. Now, when we look at how they behave, that's also something that can vary just like their biologic behavior. This is one of those tumors that if an owner calls and says, you know, Fluffy has a tumor and it wasn't there yesterday and typically go, okay, Mm. Miss Smith, right? It wasn't there yesterday. But these are those tumors just like lymphoma that can literally pop up in 12, 24 hours. And then they can also regress. So 
they very frustrating, right? Those are those ones that, you know, sometimes we can't believe our owners, but typically if you hear something like that, signal sign for something like mast cell tumor lymphoma. Um, I always tell my owners to get a pair of calipers um, at home um, and a pair of and a Sharpie so they can actually mark these when they pop up. These are also tumors that uh, contain granules. So cytologically, you're going to see those dark purple granules in the stain and they contain histamine and heparin. We know histamine is another inflammatory marker that we see with allergic type reactions like me and Yvonne are both taking antihistamines right now because of yeah. our allergies. Um, but they also contain heparin, which we know is an anticoagulant. So these are those tumors that when we aspirate them, we can see them grow or get bigger because of that histamine release, right? So that inflammatory response. And then we can also see them bleed a lot. So it's also a, a telltale sign. If you, you know, add, do an aspirate on a skin tumor and it starts to bleed, 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 um, you should have mast cell tumor kind of in the back um, of your brain. That's so good. Uh, Jenny, I definitely have had one of those where I'm, you know, restraining for my clinician doing the aspirate mm -hmm. and it just won't stop. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know how many mast cell tumors you see on, or how many mast cell tumors, how many mast cells you see on that slide? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm like, where's, where's the Benadryl? <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. what I say. I'm like, yeah, somebody get the Benadryl. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, these guys can behave crazy and different biologically, but again, also how they present as well. So just like Danny said, dogs, cats, very, very different in how they behave, also in their prognosis and how they are greeted. Um, one of the biggest prognostic indicators for mast cell tumor is metastasis at the time of diagnosis. Now, we've talked kind of previously in some of our episodes on how we do certain diagnostic tests for certain tumor types. And historically, mast cell tumor, um, we know is a round cell tumor and our round cell tumors tend to spread via our lymphatic system, right? So one of our two transit systems in the body. So regional lymph node or the lymph node closest to the primary site is typically gonna be your first hop off um, of that metastasis train. So regional lymph node um, aspirin they don't tend to go to the lungs. You know, typically we see things like sarcomas that really like to go um, into the into the lungs. But our mast cells will kind of hop the lungs and then head to the belly. So splenic mm. liver metastasis are also very very common. Now, the thing about those two on abdominal ultrasound, when you have uh, mast cell disease or mast cell burden in the spleen or the liver, typically we don't see that as a solitary mass. So you're not gonna be scanning the belly and see this large splenic mass. It's going to be very diffuse disease. So it's almost impossible to get a definitive diagnosis of metastasis to the liver and spleen without doing a fine needle aspirate. So important to know as, as part of that staging process. Now these guys can present uh, in multiple different ways, but because they are the most common skin tumor, typically we see some type of skin lesion, right? We know that our boxers, um, bull terriers, Bostons are going to be more highly predisposed to that. Males and females don't really matter. We see them in both. Our boxers, and that's my, that's one of my breeds. Um, and I have, I have one of them right now. That's a little mast cell tumor factory. Um, cool. and they tend to have these really low biologically behaving tumors. So, um, very well differentiated tumors and don't, 
really act extremely aggressive. Now, that can certainly change. Um, and you, just because you have a boxer doesn't mean they're all going to be low grade, typically grade one muscle tumors. You can certainly see those much more aggressive uh, grade twos and grade threes as well. Commonly found on the trunk, uh, about 50% accounting for on the trunk. We can see those also on the limbs and we get into trouble, especially if they're on distal limbs where we have a really difficult time getting good margins because of our yeah. recommended surgical margins, right? So we may have a tumor that we know we can't get margins on just based upon the location. And then we would talk about adding in some adjuvant therapy um, with those guys as well. So again, it's really, really common skin tumor. Most of the time we're going to see them present on the skin. However, you can see them in other locations like intranasal, um, as well as, um, digital, um, and in the belly. Yeah. So one of the biggest prognostic indicators for mast cell tumor is location. Location is extremely important. Those skin tumors tend to have a better prognosis while the digits, so if they present on a toe, have a much more aggressive biologic hmm. behavior. So um, also That's when we see them, yeah, when we see them on the oral mucosa as well, those tend to have a worse prognosis as well as on the prepuce. So prepucial area, um, Ooh, mast cell Those tumors. would suck. They're awful, right? Those. They're so horrible. And I always oh, feel God. so bad for them because yep. I'm like, ugh. Uh, yeah, all ulcerated and just, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. And those are difficult <sighs> for primary location because they're hard to surgically resect. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and those tend to all have already, um, spread to those, to those lymph nodes, um, in the inguinal area. So it can be very, very difficult. So with our skin tumors on our dogs, we're going to have two different grading systems, but in our kitty cats, we talk about two different types of cutaneous mast cell tumors, and this is mast, uh, mastocytic and then histiocytic. So our mastocytic are going to be more similar to the, our dog mast cell tumors and much more common. Uh, histiocytic is going to be much less common, um, and those can actually be quite aggressive um, as well. So our mastocytic, again, is going to be um, that much more common, kind of an older kitty type of disease. Multiple of these cats are going to have multiple of these tumors, kind of like our, mm. our dog friends, uh, and very commonly found on the head. So much less common on the limbs, but head, the penna, uh, much more common. The histiocytic form of mast cell tumor in our feline friends, these are going to present in younger kitty cats, so median age of two to four years old. We do mm. see a higher uh, incidence in male cats as well as Siamese. So if you have a Siamese breeder or a Siamese, right, <laughs> right, or a Siamese owner, this is certainly something that we can see much more common um, in that breed specifically. I'm trying uh, to think of like, I know of cats with mast cell tumors and I'm like, I don't think I know of them, but that yeah. doesn't mean that they don't come into my clinic. I'm yeah. just like, huh, I yeah. just assume they all have lymphoma. Well, and that's probably actually a good assumption. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, typically they do fairly well uh, monitoring them with surgical excision. Um, the, the tricky part with these skin tumors on dogs or cats is they can look like anything, right? Have you ever yeah. seen those mast cell tumors that come in that look like, like flat, flabby little 
like almost just a pink slightly raised and you think oh that's kind of like a weird little wart thing and almost all the time I find those end up being mast cell tumors so they can really look Mm -hmm. like anything they can feel like lipomas uh, some of the other more common tumors that we see are basal cell tumors as well as adenomas so little benign growths um, of the skin as well but they commonly present on the skin. They can present in really weird locations. Those really weird locations tend to have a worse prognosis. Our kitty cats tend to develop them on their head and their pinna and have those two different forms where we talk about grading our canines with two different grading systems. Mm-hmm. So very different. Um, again, also what makes it really, really interesting. Right. I think the cats that I've seen, I've seen, oh gosh, I could probably count on one hand how many like skin tumor. I have oh agree. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the spleen, like that is actually yeah. that visceral form. That is what I tend to hear of, which is of course not great. And right. we don't like that. But yeah. I think that's the one I've heard of more uh, yeah. than I have actual skin tumors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny and- now that you say that, I think it's the same because you know in internal medicine we aspirate spleens all the time. And and uh yeah spleen and I think I've seen maybe like on one hand, how many mast cell tumor masses in the intestines I've seen. Right. Right. Like it's not super common, but right. I've well, definitely seen them, but and I, skin? I think, yeah, I think we see more of the cutaneous in oncology because I think when those splenic tumors get aspirated, they mm. typically don't make it to us. You know what I mean? Because the prognosis mm. is so crappy and they're usually really, really sick. Um, right. so, yeah. you know what I mean? So I think you guys you know, I, I, it, I think you guys probably definitely see a lot of them. Um, I think yeah. as far as the chemotherapy administration and treatment aspect, we probably mm-hmm. don't treat as many of those because their response to therapy and their prognosis is so guarded. That's, yeah, uh, actually, I that think you're, I think I don't see them as often as internal medicine comes yeah. and asks us about Correct. them. And <laughs> Correct. Yeah. That's, my, yeah. That's probably uh, so that's true. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. 100%. 100 so true <laughs> i don't think i've ever like, actually ooh. had one come yeah right 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 medicine. yeah that's really funny i didn't i didn't even think about that that's so true <laughs> yeah and jenny's right these can look like anything i know people where it's mm. looked like a little eraser head on like your number yeah. pencils yeah and had that removed on a younger dog and oh look at that grade one mast cell tumor which of course uh, any other technician sees the words mast cell tumor they're pretty sure that their their dog is about to die and we're like oh grade one oh yeah oh no 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 you're just gonna get to watch for those (laughs) for the rest of their life it's so crazy because my my pit bull she um she had random i mean okay she was she was my she was my internal medicine nightmare but before she got evans um she would have these random like masses that would pop up and they're like oh she's a pit bull she must have mast cell tumor and i'm like all right so they did the body map and there was like five bazillion of them but only one came back as a mast cell tumor and i was very excited because it was like you know that little dingly like ear flap thing Mm -hmm. it was like right there so the oh. surgeon was super excited because he was like, I'm going to make it look like nothing happened. So when she <laughs> sticks her head out the window, her ear will flap like normal. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it was really funny, but that- she, amazingly it was grade one and she never had another one. Like the rest of the things that it was paniculitis that 
Yeah. yeah anyways, again, internal medicine train wreck, but, um, yeah, I was like, oh God, not mast cell tumor on top of everything else. <laughs> but yeah, no, she did good. But yeah, then, then I see those dogs that come in through oncology and I'm like, oh, look, it's your 50th mast cell tumor. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You know, I've actually seen one of those where it was like a mastocytosis dog where I mean, mast cell tumors everywhere. It was like, yeah, gosh, I think it was like a cattle dog actually now that I think about it oh um yeah not even one of our main breeds so of course we're like what and I'm reading like what is this you know how many surgeries she's had for this dog and then it came and it had all of them but uh they all just kept watching and saying there was nothing that they could do uh so we did this was not a nice dog either I will say that Mm. it was very unpredictably I'm going to bite it bit me multiple times but it was like my shoes and I used to wear Danskos. So those teeth were not penetrating that <laughs> shoe. Um, I was like, nice. you just randomly attacked my foot. What just happened here, sir? So yeah. but we, we did treat him and he ended up being a lot nicer by the end. Well, and um, I think it's, I think it's so funny. The statement you made about your dog and the surgeon was like, Oh, I'm going to cut it where nothing's going to look different. And from an oncology standpoint, we're like, take the whole ear, please. <laughs> got it all you know it's so he's like if we need to be more aggressive about it later we can he's like but let's let's just start with it and like they got full margins yeah i was like oh lord okay (laughs) god Um, i love our surgeons couldn't do it without them right yeah so i mean it looked beautiful and like you couldn't tell unless you like held up her ear and you're like oh there's a there's a chunk missing of it but yeah it looked good when it was just hanging out that's amazing so when we talk about diagnosing these, um, there's a lot of things that we can do. So especially as technicians, again, if you are allowed to in your state, um, we can absolutely do the fine needle aspirate and we can diagnose mast cell tumors off of our cytology from our FNA. However, we cannot grade it. So right. once that FNA has been performed, we still are going to recommend actually like a biopsy before surgery. Because as we've mentioned, grade one, it's great. Just keep watching. And grade three, things get a little more dicey. So knowing that um, tells you a lot about what those next steps will need to be, especially for that owner. But we can, well, I'll get there. <laughs> that's one so things, crazy because I don't think we've ever biopsied before surgery. That's a lot of times we recommend it. Especially if it's in a harder huh. uh, to like surgically excise location. Oh, or if it's, that makes um, sense. Like it's, yeah you know, like not large, but it is larger so that you can easily take a little, a little piece of it versus if it's very tiny, obviously you're just going to go for, for that because it is smaller. I don't think you could biopsy it. You'd have like little mini tools to take a little, right? So it's true. That's true. Absolutely. We always want to pre-treat with an antihistamine. Um, we do talk about this a bit more later, so I, I won't go too much into it, but they can degranulate, which is they essentially just release all of their stuff and cause problems throughout the body. So in oncology, when we are aspirating a mass, um, not a lymph node, uh, like we think it's lymphoma, but any other mass, depending on the history, we'll pay really close attention because there's a good chance we will give them Benadryl ahead of time just because if it is a mast cell tumor, just with handling, they can get angry and release, um, all of their toxins and histamine into the system. So we want to be careful with that. 
Uh, and then there's body mapping, which we mentioned earlier already. Mm. And that is exactly what it sounds like. You are measuring <laughs> every mass you can find. You are aspirating every mass you can find. Um, oh my gosh, these turn into huge things where we're collecting slides. And honestly, a lot of times we'll end up putting numbers on them because on the body map, we have numbers and then it's easier to figure out which is which. Yeah. And then if any look suspicious and they're not benign looking and we are submitting them, a lot of them are looked at in-house when they are those, um, then we would be able to say exactly where that tumor was. And a lot of times for that tumor, um, we pull out our Sharpies and we are advocating drawing on your dog. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and we say Sharpies because that's not just going to wash off really easily. It's not going to hurt. If you need them. to remove it, alcohol will take it off. Exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> someone does do that anyway. And you're like, where did that go? You were supposed to leave that on for surgery. Right. <laughs> Marco. So it also helps. Uh, to point out to well us. and and that's a really good point too to let owners know like leave the sharpie there because we may see it and it, it's super obvious and then it shrinks because mm -hmm. sometimes they do that and then you're like where did it go and you have no idea so yeah the sharpie it's definitely important for a surgery absolutely and that's if they're referred to oncology just because they have a mass like they haven't done anything at their regular but it didn't come through internal medicine usually in that history if we hear that the mass was there and then it was gone and now it's back we just start preparing for mass cell tumor <laughs> because right. it's the only one whereas a lot of people be like did they just not realize that it wasn't there it's a new mass we're like oh no that's a mass cell tumor <laughs> right well, and what a great way to utilize technicians, right? What a great technician skill to get them involved mm. in those cases, in that body mapping and educating the owners on how we do those aspirates and how they can do, you know, monitor those patients at home as well. So it's, I think it's a fantastic technician skill way to utilize us out in the field. Yeah. And always remember at least two measurements every single tumor, not just one where you've measured across and it's 2.2 centimeters. No, no, we need at least two, preferably three, but you can't always get three, um, to see how, like how much one sticks out. That is a little difficult at times. So at least two, um, and teaching the owners, the value of two <laughs> measurements as well. <laughs> uh, and then we can do lab work. Um, there are some things that you can see with mast cell tumors that can show up on lab work. Uh, most of it is to finish our baseline, make sure that we are healthy and that we are good to go for um, additional treatment if we need it, surgery if we need it, and that there's not anything we need to correct. However, because of the histamine and other things that they can release, uh, especially if they're degranulating, they can cause GI ulcers. So we can see some anemia with that. And then from that degranulation, we can also see eosinophilia and basophilia because they get kind of excited about that. And so when um, you see more of those on your CBC, then you're like, hmm, was that a mess? Well, and it's a good, it just, it's really important for people to remember mast cells in general, right? There, a, a lot of what they do deal with is like, inflammation and allergy and allergic reaction. And Absolutely. so think like think anaphylaxis and that'll help you understand what happens when yeah. they degranulate. Right. Um, that, so that chronic inflammation marker. That's also yep. why we can see those kids that have that chronic skin disease 
Um, mm. Because of that chronic inflammation, they are more likely to develop some type of skin tumor, especially a mast cell tumor, because those mast cells are already so prevalent um, in that inflammation process. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. And um, one of the things that I found, especially because cats, uh, is that mm. in their normal blood, about 25% of that can act of the white blood cells can actually be mast cells. So they're already there. They haven't been activated mm. in doing what they do, but in cats, they can already be there. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind that when they make things upset. Um, for imaging, I know that we love to say, you know, chest x-rays, chest x-rays, chest x-rays for cancer because everything goes to the lungs. <laughs> Mass cell tumor is not that kid. Um, if it does go to the lungs, it's really, really rare. Um, and it's like a diffuse pattern, not those discrete nodules. However, mm -hmm. if there, the tumor is on the um, front half of the body, then we can see because they like to go to their regional lymph nodes. So those lymph nodes could be enlarged and you could see that on chest x-rays. So we will always want to do three view x-rays because we want to make sure we get that complete picture. And then also just to make sure that we don't have any other disease process going on in our older kids. I know we will Ugh. always do it if they are eight years and up. Mm -hmm. And then if it like, that's even if it's on like a back foot, <laughs> we will <laughs> right. still be like, okay, if you're over eight years, we're still taking chest x-rays. Um, just to make unfortunately sure we... cancer does what cancer wants. And sometimes there's multiple friends. Yes. Rules of cancer are. medicine. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, one of our, our most recommended, and this is how we end up with getting them from internal medicine is going to be our abdominal ultrasound. So what we can see is any abnormalities, uh, enlarged abdominal lymph nodes, intestinal mast cell tumor, those splenic mast cell tumors, um, or it could look completely normal. So say they just have a subcutaneous tumor somewhere. Um, even if it looks normal, we should aspirate the spleen. Like Jenny said, mm -hmm. it won't look like a tumor, but it could also look completely normal and still be present. So mm -hmm. usually in internal medicine and oncology, we're like, oh, we need to aspirate anything that looks abnormal. I know I've written that on our request forms, anything abnormal, do that. Our mast cells <laughs> are right. FNA the spleen anyway. Like we always yeah. would do that if they're doing the ultrasound and offer that up to the owner and let them know why. Um, so some, some quick facts about doing the FNA of our spleen and liver is that about 10% uh, have positive liver aspirates in those grade two and some of those grade threes. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'm going to give these out by grade. So grade one, obviously we've talked about the fact that that's, um, it's not benign, but it's not generally a huge cause for concern. 0% have been present in the spleen. <laughs> when you get to grade two, 2% 2 of them Grade three, 19%. Oh, wow. Positive splenic or liver aspirates. So, as you can see, that's they get a little more severe as we go up in grade. Yeah. Um, and then the some of the procedures that we do are regional lymph node aspirates. So, wherever we've got our tumor, we do want to make sure we're also aspirating that regional lymph node, whether or not it is enlarged. Because again, mast cells, man, they can come on in and not cause really many changes at first. So we want to mm. see if we can get a, a sample because up to 76% are metastatic to the regional lymph node at the time of diagnosis. Whew. Poke those regional lymph nodes. 
Unless, of course, they're harder to get to because, you know, they have dreamed to the internal ones. And that's right. when you look at your ultrasound <laughs> and go for those. Um, which, honestly, if you can see them at that point, there's a good chance that it might. But as Jenny said, inflammation yeah. does a lot of things, too. Um, we also used to recommend this a lot, or bone marrow aspirates. Not all oncologists recommend them. Um, it can check for circulating mast cells and mastocytosis. However, it's not entirely possible for a lot of people to do it. And it's not nearly mm. as common. Um, with mastocytosis, that can be very, very helpful to see if they are actually circulating already. But it is something that we recommend, especially with those higher grade ones. And then, like I said, incisional biopsy. We do want to determine the grade before surgical resection. And you want to make sure that that biopsy site will be included in that surgical removal. Like that is, it's got to be a very strategic place that you're doing that biopsy. Mm. If you're thinking about going in and removing it after the fact, uh, you want to make sure that that whole, whole section is pulled out and the grade does determine the recommended surgical margins. So mm. it's going to be less if you are a grade one. So we get our little biopsy. We find out we're a grade one. We need like one to two centimeters to pull, to go ahead and remove that. Our grade three, we need to go a full layer below where it is into like the muscle layers as well. Um, anything that we, if we don't know the grade, they want four centimeters around that tumor. Think about that. So if you've ever met me and my dog, uh, he had a random mass on his back and it was not very big and we couldn't really figure out what it was. And of course I was like, well, we're removing that, right? moving it. <laughs> his scar is huge because we didn't know what we were dealing with and it's along his spine. So it's there forever. There's no hiding it. Uh, and he was maybe one years old. So of course I was just a crazy mom who works in oncology and knows way too much about what little masses can do. And of course it was an infected hair follicle from his chronic allergies. So no. Okay. He recovered just fine. And he's been great ever since, but I stopped kind of freaking out when he has those little things pop up. Um, I keep an eye on them for a little minute and measure them. So I love it. Right? Those are the things we want to keep in mind. That is really why we recommend getting that. And especially, so we have gotten a biopsy sample and it comes back grade three. Well, I've just said like 19% of those have positive spleen or liver aspirates. Well, if we haven't done an abdominal ultrasound, the owner was like, I want to start with a biopsy. Well, we now know, Ooh, we've got to really get in there and get that local lymph node. We need to go ahead and like, take a look at our spleen or liver and take additional steps mm. versus if it came back as grade one. Okay. Let's go ahead and remove that. <laughs> right. <laughs> some surgery. And then we do have some special tests for, um, mast cell tumors. There are additional panels that can be uh, performed. Specific labs tend to do this. Universities are some of the big ones. Um, so the CKIT, which is the stem cell factor, it does regulate mast cell tumor growth. So if it's not there, there's no growth, right? 20 to 40% of patients have a mutation in KIT. So keep that in mind. So it's, it's not a very small number, but with the CKIT mutation, what this tells us is that they're more likely to respond to our tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which is our tocerinib or palladia. So 69% oh. of those with that mutation respond to palladia or tocerinib. Because, so that's 
really when we're looking at our grade threes to see if that is um, because we always want to follow those up with chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. If they don't have that mutation, perhaps a different chemotherapy is going to be recommended for them versus interesting. It. So I don't know if my oncology department sends that out. I'm going to have to ask them now. Not all of them do. Um, because then there is also KI-67 and Agnor, which is usually if you're sending out a mast cell tumor panel, a lot of those are all included in that, but they don't tell you a lot about prognosis in all honesty. Um, and so they're still really looking at the value of adding that on because the, the cost, it's not cheap. Um, mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure when we're recommending these to our clients that it really has an added value to what we're going to do with their pet because yeah. So that one is still, I just think of like, I know how expensive Palladia can be. (laughs) That is, And I'm like, you know, but I spend the money on a test to know if it works. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Very good point. Especially if you have a very large dog, (laughs) because yes, right. That is is not a cheap medication. Uh, And mainly because it's still been uh, a brand name, right? It hadn't Mm. made it to the point where it's not like, I I think of how much like Clavamox used to cost or Rimadil. So we just haven't made it to that point yet either. Uh, One of the other things you can do when you're running a CBC is a Buffy coat analysis. So I'm Mm -hmm. I'm hoping everyone knows what Buffy coat is, but you know, when you, if you spun down a PCV, you have that little white strip and that's your Buffy coat. Um, mastocytosis, you can see a much bigger Buffy coat in all honesty, but mm. if we're looking at that, uh, greater than two or three circulating mast cells are suggestive, but it's not specific for systemic mastocytosis. So remember mast cells already are in the body and they do get activated by various things. And so inflammation, all of those other, um, <laughs> them doing their job, uh, they tend to actually go after parasites versus, um, any other type of allergy. That's usually their job, mm-hmm. but so it's not definitive. So we don't always do it. We just look at the blood, right? <laughs> so I know that when I talked about doing our, our biopsy before our surgery, that we want to grade our tumors. Oh, when we grade our tumors. So there's an old (laughs) system and a new system. Of course. Right? Because why wouldn't we have two? (laughs) So the old system, and they actually, honestly, most places report in both, which is beneficial Mm -hmm. because they do tell you two different things. So the older system, that's the three-tier Patnik system. I'm hoping I pronounced that right. And that is the one where we've been talking about grade one, grade two, grade three. Um, what we did run into is that some tumors were biologically behaving more aggressive, but cytology looked less anaplastic. So they're trying to find a better way to describe those versus based on that aggressiveness instead of just the grades. So then they developed a new system and it's two tier and it's low grade and high grade. 
So they, the, the grade three Kuiper or uh, Patnik system divides them into that grade one, grade two, and grade three. And there are specific criteria that they have to fit to fit those. And it relies around the anisocytosis, anisokaryosis, the different mitotic index. The grade two, which is the Kuiper system, which was formed in 2011, because what we were seeing clinically. Uh, and the reason I, we did a lot of research on this at, at the university where I was, the, we weren't seeing that the clinical behavior was mimicking the biologic behavior on cytology with the three tier, because we would have some grade twos that really behave like grade threes. And we would have some grade twos that really behave like grade one. So this great, this grade mm -hmm. two, the criteria was, was very broad and very vague. So the two tier Kuiper system that was uh, kind of brought forth in 2011. So much later divides them into more how they are behaving cytologically. And as Danny said, most pathologists these days will list in a grade, uh, a uh, two-tier system and a three-tier system. So on the bottom of your biopsy report, you're going to see Kuiper grade, Patnik grade. If you mm. don't see that on your biopsy report, very good to call that pathologist and ask for that additional, especially if they don't list the Kuiper, which is the two-tier, because if you've got a grade two Patnik, we know that it can behave more biologically or uh, clinically like a grade one or a grade three. So that Kuiper, that two-tier system may give us more of an indication of how they are going to behave in the, in clinically. Um, so it can give you a much additional information as well. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and our staging for these guys, remember grading is a tumor thing. Staging is a patient thing. So grading of the, of the tumor is either a two tier or three tier. When we stage the patient, that tells us the extent of disease um, within the body, right? So our stage zero are going to be incompletely excised mast cell tumor uh, that's confirmed, uh, confined to the dermis with no nodal metastasis. So one location, maybe incompletely excised, we might have to follow up with some additional therapy. Um, a great, a stage one is one tumor or one location that's confined to the dermis with no nodal metastasis. Uh, stage two is going to be one tumor also confined to the dermis with positive nodal metastasis. So if you have a boxer that has one mast cell tumor on the skin that's already spread to the regional lymph node, we're gonna call that a stage two. Stage three is gonna be multiple dermal tumors or those really large invading tumors with or without nodal metastasis. So one of the interesting things in the literature though states that when we see these patients with multiple confined dermal tumors, it doesn't actually necessarily give them a worse prognosis. We actually see a worse prognosis with those really large infiltrative um, mm. ulcerated type tumors. Uh, and then stage four is going to be any tumor that has, that has metastasis. Um, and like Danny said, fine needle aspirates, because it's a round cell tumor and tends to exfoliate or give off its cells really easily, 
it's very easy to get a definitive diagnosis of a mast cell tumor on cytology and what mm-hmm. those guys look like under the microscope, you know, they're round cell tumor, they're around, right? Um, and they tend to be fairly large. So think of macrophage size when you're looking under a microscope and they're going to contain those histam- that uh, those granules that you see. Typically, if people have seen cytology, I call this the gateway cytolog- uh, cytology tumor because I think <laughs> this is the tumor that's the easiest to recognize because of these granules and this is what people see and they go oh cytology is cool right so I call it the the gateway tumor Um, (laughs) uh, but large they typically stain a really really dark purple um, on uh, stain with our diff quick stain they can be missed with diff quick stain a lot of times it's recommended to use like a right schemes up stain guys I'll tell Clinically, I mean, even though I was in a university, clinically, everybody uses DivQuick. If that's what you have, use it, right? Most of the time you're going to see um, those, those well-differentiated tumors for sure. Can I ask a quick question about staging? Absolutely. So you said zero was incompletely excised. What would mm-hmm. like a completely excised mass, would that fall under zero as well? Well, so with if it has no microscopic disease left over, that patient's considered cure. Okay, so that's not a stage. That's just correct. Like curative. Correct, because they have no disease, oh. right? So okay. when we stage okay. them, we're staging the present disease. So if you have a patient that's had a grade one that's completely excised, they have no mast cell. Got it, okay. So the staging that's starting at zero is the staging with present disease. Okay, that makes Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See guys, this is why I asked the oncology people here. <laughs> That's all right. Don't ask me about diabetes because I don't know. <laughs> You're like internal medicine help. <laughs> and one of the fun things about cytology too, is if you're looking and you're not sure if that's a mast cell is they attract eosinophils. So if you are looking at your cytology and you see eosinophils around, plus this little cell that you think might be a mast cell, there's a good chance that it is. So just keeping that in mind. Which makes sense because eosinophils are also part of um, allergies and inflammation. Absolutely. Yep. 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 Those little eos. They're so cute. (laughs) And they're pretty. I like them. Right? I know. I, I feel like I talked about this in another maybe I didn't. Is that one of my favorite cells ever to look at? I, I don't do birds. I don't treat birds. Sorry guys. I'm a cats and dogs okay. girl, but their eosinophils are the best cells to ever look at because they look like little <laughs> like raspberries. They're those, Oh, they're so pretty and cute. Sorry. If you've never seen one, find someone who can get you a slide or you can Google it. They're so pretty. Google it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when we go to treat these, right, we've said that the treatment decision depends on prognostic factors and clinical stage, as well as once we get our biopsy, then our grade is going to tell us a lot about what we need to do. So I already kind of went through our surgical resection, right? So if we don't know what it is, we're going for three to four centimeter margin of normal tissue because what may look like the border with mast cell tumors is so often not they just invade right on in. And so anything that looks normal, they still want to grab a huge margin of that because they have like little tendrils that just kind of go on out and do their Mm -hmm. thing. So keep that in mind with mast cell tumors. Um, We're going to be like, I swear I got it, but they say that there's some on the margins. We're going to consider that incompletely excised. 
Um, so with surgery, once we have done that, we want to look at um, our mean survival time and our other treatments because beyond surgery, there's also radiation therapy. Mast cell tumors are very responsive to radiation. So that is absolutely um, a route that we can take as well as chemotherapy. If we have a completely excised grade one tumor, that's, as Jenny said, considered cured. So we don't have to do any further therapy other than watching for more mast cell tumors or just lumps and bumps. Um, and so we want to make sure that they know to always keep an eye on any new bump that may show up on their dog. When it comes to grade two, this is where it's very important to differentiate um, that high versus low, how aggressive it may or may not be to know if we need to do additional therapy once it has been excised, if it is complete. A lot of times we do follow those up with additional treatment. Um, grade three, we always follow those up with additional treatment, complete or incomplete excision. So when we, for grade three, if it's incomplete, a lot of times that's when we recommend um, radiation therapy at that surgical site to get any of those cells, as many as we can, right? Because we're going for that microscopic disease, but as many of those as we can possibly get um, and irrad irradiate, eradicate, whichever one of those <laughs> words we want, <laughs> um, those cells. And then we generally also follow it up with chemotherapy because most of those grade threes have become systemic disease and we wanna make sure that we are taking care of any of that. So when we are looking at recurrence rate, um, it's really, really low for grade one and two, like to recur in the same spot that it's been removed. If they're gonna have another tumor, it's usually gonna be in a different location. Mm -hmm. um, so for grade one, 0%. We almost never use that, but 0% local tumor recurrence and 100% survival rate at one in three years out. So they keep going. It's usually something else. Let's be honest. Right. Um, for grade two, it's going to depend again, at that lower high grade, um, but it can be up to about 11% local tumor recurrence rate. And then that medium time, median, I said median, uh, two recurrence is usually about like two months up to almost two years. So it could recur in that location. So we're talking about the local recurrence. So when they're gonna, a new tumor development, so we get about 10 to 40% tumor development um, for a second tumor in a new spot, remember? So that one is usually, that's about 240 days up to a year. So they would get a new one that is related. Um, and then, so up to 22% distant metastasis rate. So just keep that in mind. And that's usually, our, that's our grade twos. So up to 22% do go other places. So again, those are usually those higher grade. That's why that to getting both systems reported is very important. So we'd have an idea for that. Um, it's 84 to 89% of dogs with grade two mast cell tumor are cured with surgery alone. Wow. So that's really great that it's only about 10% that would then need an additional therapy. So like we said, the general one for these guys is going to be two centimeter margins. This is if we know what we're dealing with, um, two fascial planes. So that is going down into that muscular layer when you need to. And then, um, on the histo, what they consider complete is going to be at least 
five millimeters at all margins. So anything less than that, if it was four millimeters, they would consider it incomplete. So that's the standard for that, for what hmm. to be able to call what's complete versus incomplete. So in general, <laughs> for those uh, mast cell tumors, we're looking at the mean survival time of 600 to 1600 <laughs> days, right? So this is years. Please keep in this mind. This is something we- else has gotten them. <laughs> Please keep in mind that is grades one and two. Grade three is honestly like its own tumor or yeah. its own type because it can be so aggressive. So yeah. with this, um, it is local tumor recurrence. It is usually, <laughs> it, it usually happens, um, especially if it's incomplete. You can pretty much guarantee that that's going to happen because it just infiltrates deeply. It grows more rapidly. We have more um, mitosis happening. So the cancer cells are just spreading prolifically. So it's absolutely going to be far more aggressive. I do go into the prognosis on those guys a little bit more later. So how do we actually treat these? So we've got medical management, right? So we talked about histamine release. That's a big one. So a lot of times we're going to do gastroprotectants and antihistamines. A lot of clinicians use famotidine and diphenhydramine. (laughs) Those are some of the big ones, but they can also use omeprazole. I know a lot are switching over to omeprazole um, and using different antihistamines. This does not prevent new mast cell tumors from occurring. Right. What this does is it prevents that degranulation and all of the systemic effects that you can have from that, that look like that allergic reaction. It prevents those, especially as you know, if you handle them, they can degranulate. So it just prevents that stuff. So a lot of these kids can be put on that for life, especially if it's um, uh, grade two, that's completely excised. It doesn't need to be followed up with anything else. A lot of times we still recommend that they then go on those meds for life. Um, grade one, it is clinician dependent on whether or not they will recommend that they stay on that. I know some that have just because they're like, I swear they're going to create more. <laughs> they're allergy dogs. And then prednisone and prednisone can be its own or prednisolone for cats, but prednisone can be its own treatment. They can, um, it definitely affects mast cell tumors. And I know that sometimes prior to surgery, if we have a lot of tumor, it's just a bulky mass tumor and we want to shrink it before surgery because it's in a location that is just not great. And so we need it to be as small as possible. We will sometimes use prednisone because it's, it's an easy thing for an owner to give at home prior to surgery. Sometimes we'll also use radiation or even chemotherapy to shrink those down. Uh, one of the biggest things you have to remember when using prednisone though, is it slows healing time. So some surgeons do often want patients off of prednisone prior to surgery within a certain amount of days. It's not always possible with this. So you have to work really closely with your surgeon on them understanding that they're going to continue the prednisone up to surgery so that it can be as small as possible. Yeah. One of the other considerations also with giving prednisone in these kids, I mean, prednisone is very commonly to treat, used to treat mast cell tumors, but what we know about mast cell tumors and how they behave with that histamine and heparin release is that there was a, a study and I think it was a 2008 study. Um, I think, I, I think I added the link, um, 
that reported on necropsy that up to 60% of patients that had mast cell tumors also had concurrent GI ulcers. So mm. if they are having these GI ulcers secondary to their mast cell tumors, and then we're adding prednisone on top of that, right? You can see where we can certainly have lots of GI problems, um, yeah. not only just because of the mast cell tumor, because of the way we treat it as well. And if they already have a GI ulcer, we're just going to exacerbate that problem. So those supportive medications are huge, um, especially when they're on PRED. Yeah. And then we also get into chemotherapy. So this is integrated in uh, the grade two, those higher grade grade twos, um, grade three, and then systemic mastocytosis. We've got a couple different options. Um, some that are the injectable options. There are oral ones as well. So vinblastine is commonly used. Uh, we also use lomastine. Uh, Tocerinib is our TKI, our tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is the first true veterinary chemotherapy that came down approved by the FDA. So that one is such a big deal because this is not, yes, this does exist in humans, um, mast cell tumors, but it is not common at all like it is in our veterinary patients. Mm, so finding that was fantastic. It is oral. Uh, we do have to monitor blood work really closely. So these are given every other day, usually on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, some I know have done Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, but we have to monitor, uh, they can get, um, they can have protein loss. So we have to watch that. It can create hypertension. So we also mm -hmm. monitor their blood pressures, um, as well as chemistry, CBC, urinalysis. So the urinalysis is really important for that protein loss. So we do want to look for protein in our urine. Um, it's a big, big deal. And then the newer kid on the block is Stelfanta, and I do not have experience using it myself, but it is used for, um, gross tumors. And most of these guys, the subcutaneous ones, they have to be in very specific location. And that is honestly below the knee or below the elbow. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with degranulation, because if you do it higher up on the body than that, the degranulation can cause a necrotic area that can lead to systemic, um, essentially kind of like sepsis and mm -hmm. potentially death. So we don't recommend that. We only want to do it far away. It's really crazy. It they promote <laughs> like, for so this. Amazing. It like turns into a wound, um, but it is effective. And some are starting to use it a bit more, but so if you hear that one thrown around, it is very new. And so it's not as widely used yet. So Dang. the right. is still our, our big one that we do. And then of course my radiation expert to talk about <laughs> how awesome radiation I've Oh, we've referred so many for radiation that have grade three. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I have never used Stelfonta clinically either. Um, but I, uh, Dr. Sue Ettinger, um, uses it a lot. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about Stelfonta, um, her website, uh, as well as the Stelfonta website has a ton of information, um, 
but like Danny said, it's, it's, it's pretty new. Um, radiation therapy is an excellent option for patients, especially with microscopic disease. So we know that radiation therapy works best on any tumor, truly, on microscopic disease versus macroscopic disease. Mm. There is um, a study that showed with incomplete margins from surgery plus radiation therapy, we saw a 90% two-year control with grade one or grade two tumors. So very good long-term local control. And it's important to remember our radiation therapy is a local treatment, not a systemic treatment. It only treats the area underneath the beam. Um, and that's why we would use chemotherapy like Danny talked about in conjunction or as an adjuvant therapy to prevent that, that systemic spread or that metastasis. Um, with microscopic disease, with our radiation therapy, we tend to do what's called a definitive protocol. Uh, and this is typically, not all the time, but typically going to be more treatments or more fractions of radiation over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And we know that the um, potential for toxicity associated with radiation is directly related and linked to the dose of total radiation received, as well as the time frame. So if we give smaller doses over a longer period of time, we know that we're going to see less side effects um, from that treatment. If we give larger doses of radiation in fewer treatments, which we call our palliative courses of radiation, we know that there is an increased risk of worse side effects with that that treatment scheme. Now, why would we do palliative over definitive? Those palliative cases are going to be cases we know that we are not going to put them into a complete remission locally. We are trying to A, control the tumor size from getting any larger or make them more comfortable, right? Um, radiation therapy works really, really well for pain control and decreasing those cytokines um, associated with inflammation that a lot of times are a precursor to pain. So it works really well for that. So we can give that larger dose per fraction because we don't expect that patient to live as long to develop those side effects from the larger dose per fraction. The patients with microscopic disease, we treat them with a lower dose over more fractions because we hope to make them live a lot longer, right? Because we want to put that disease into a local remission. So two different treatment protocols for radiation for mast cell tumors based upon do we have a little bit of disease left over or do we have a gross large lesion left over? Um, definitive courses of radiation go anywhere from $3,000 to $10,000. Our palliative courses typically are going to be anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000. So cost-wise um, is a bit different um, as well. Some of the side effects we can see with radiation are acute things like dermatitis and mucositis. Uh, and then we also have a category of what's called delayed effects. And these are going to be things like secondary tumor formation, bone necrosis, right? The things we are trying to prevent by doing that, that definitive course of therapy. Um, but for our microscopic disease patients, it's an excellent option to kind of clean up those, those dirty margins left behind for surgery. And, you know, I just love radiation. So. <laughs> I'm guilty. It's true. It's Danny Bright. She knows me very well. Have you guys, um, 
have you done or have you guys talked about like ect at all for mast cell tumors you can you can the problem is that degranulation part um mm. because we can see systemic release of that histamine and heparin it's not as commonly used on mast cell tumor because of that because Got what it. you have to do is inject that chemotherapy into the tumor and then give that electrical stimulus to the tumor so the whole thought is to break down those cell walls well if we break down those cell walls what's going to happen mm. all that histamine and heparin is going to get released into the bloodstream so not as yeah. common of a tumor that we treat with ECT. Yeah. So I, I, I was just trying to think of like the things that I've seen. Um, but yeah, you're right. Incomplete margins. I think our oncologists usually recommend radiation then. That's, I know I had, um, oh gosh, he was of course the cutest little Frenchie, but he had one, uh, grade three, pretty sizable mass cell tumor on his hot. And so, <sighs> and this is obviously pre-Stelfanta anyway, but uh, we did surgery incomplete because there's not anything there except some skin, bone, and tendons. So, um, right. very incomplete went and had full course radiation and then followed it up with chemotherapy. And so despite having a very high grade three tumor did actually live, oh gosh, I, I want to say it was, it was over a year, which is a big deal for a, a tumor that aggressive because they were able to do all of those things, which not everyone has. And yeah. one of the things I'm going to mention about treatment. So we went through all of those. That's dogs. Cats are <laughs> not that. So when talking about prognosis, especially I'm going to start with the cats, because in all honesty, there's not a whole lot of treatment options outside of surgery. So yeah. with the intestinal, that's a very poor prognosis in cats. Um, unfortunately, most cats die or are euthanized soon after diagnosis. That is not well, that's the because they're as... also discovered when they're like exactly. huge and nasty and maybe already like leaking Locked. and oh yeah. yes they are that's usually nice. uh very very metastatic so yeah there's not a whole yeah. lot that we can do um splenic is a bit different though so versus the intestinal so if it's just splenic with surgery alone um means probably it's 12 to 19 months so you can get over a year with just surgery um, the poor prognostic factors with that, uh, that would give us less time are going to be the anorexia and weight loss, obviously, mm. we're not getting our nutrition and then male cats are actually, huh. if they're male, that's negative, uh, females live longer. So it's very interesting because right. cats, you know, and then there's our cutaneous in cats. It's uh, metastatic rate is variable. Um, local tumor does tend to recur if it's going to, uh, in less than six months. And in these guys, that grade is not prognostic. No, for dogs, <laughs> grade is like everything, right? Grade is life. So Ted Lasso <laughs> for you instead of football, grade is life. Um, but for cats, of course, it's not prognostic. Um, and the incomplete excision is not associated with a higher rate of recurrence. So whether or not you completely remove it says nothing about if it's going to come back. Um, oh, also Lord. not associated with metastatic disease or death. So this is not the cutaneous in cats is not generally what is going to kill them. Uh, it's going to be something else. We still want to address it, but it's just one of those things. It's not <laughs> as scary as when we see it in dogs. So, so just figured I'd point that out because it's kind of crazy with cats. So they, they don't need like chemotherapy. 
doesn't affect any of this at all at this point. I'm sure we're going to study and find things that can actually matter um, and yeah. make a difference in their life, um, make quality of life better, and perhaps even get our splenic or intestinal ones, see if we can get them some, some more time. But at this point, we don't have it. But for dogs, yeah. so Jenny, for you, one of the uh, things that is associated with better prognosis is just being a boxer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is kind of crazy it, because they tend to have well differentiated tumors, which respond better to treatment and um, are less likely to metastasize and generally lower grade. So, yay, being a boxer, right? That doesn't usually happen that a breed is a prognostic factor. I don't know that I've seen that in many other cancers. Um, older dogs have significantly shorter survival time, um, as well as those recurrent rate or new tumors. Um, okay. Can I just say that that sentence makes me giggle? Oh. I'm like an old dog is going to have less survival time than a new, like young dog. <laughs> Bull, duh. Sorry. I just think it's funny <laughs> because it, it's, it's horrible because like the survival times, like they don't tell you, like, is it because of the tumor or is it just like, they're old and they die. Like you can, they don't differentiate that sometimes in the, in the studies. So you're just like, uh-huh. Well, thanks. Oh, I'm rolling over here. Vaughn. <laughs> well, the only, the only thing I can say to that is that with just about every other cancer, younger dogs, it's a poorer prognosis. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, like <laughs> and so that's the only kind of differentiating with this one. Guess what? Just kidding. The older dogs, it actually is what you'd expect. You know, so, yes, they survive not as long as a young dog. But that just means we can get a long time out of them from surgery, like they do get to live to be old dogs. So that's also great. Um, and here's the same thing: male dogs more likely to have recurrent and shorter survival times when treated with chemotherapy. Yay, it's great to be a girl. <laughs> huh. So um just something to think about. We don't generally we don't talk about it a lot um in this field, but it is actually something that they have seen. Um grade three obviously is going to be poor prognosis. And so prepucial, subungal, perianal, oral, um, all of those are usually more aggressive. They're usually grade threes but they're generally more aggressive. So that's a poorer prognosis than any of the other locations. Um, there's very grave prognosis with visceral or bone marrow involvement. They don't even give an MST. So it, it's not, it's Oof. not good. Right. Oof. So when we're looking at our grade one mast cell tumor, hundred percent, you also don't throw that around. I've seen zero, right. That one. <laughs> and 100% survival rate at one, one and a half, two years. So we're, we're getting time out of these guys. Um, grade two, we are looking at, so 71% has a, a year survival rate. Um, and then getting closer to 50% at that year and a half and just under 50% at two years. So again, th that doesn't differentiate the high and low for twos because that's where it's really gonna matter. Um, and then grade three, Ugh. quarter, so 24%. Of a year survival rate. So grade three is, is very rough. 19% um, at a year and a half, 7% at two years. So they are very aggressive and we don't get a whole lot of time out of them. So definitely taking into consideration their quality of life. And that's why also 
biopsy it first, because if you know that with yeah. the grade three, if finances are an option, then maximizing the time that they have is going to be priority over what other treatments like, okay, normally we'd follow this up with chemotherapy, but we removed it. So at this point, quality of life is good and they want to enjoy it. Those are the kind of conversations that we're going to have and why we really stress that biopsy that we just can't get it off yeah. the FNA. But if we get that biopsy first, we can give them so much more information instead of giving them everything that we talked about today and an owner being like, okay, so what's my choice? What's right? A hundred percent survival or 7%. Like right. these are your, like, let's figure out what's going on. Yeah. So biopsy is very, very important there. Um, and then, so, and then what to expect at home for, for these clients. So explaining what degranulation is like, that's a big word. And they're going to be like, wait, what it'll do what? <laughs> so, oh, Hey, it's going to release histamine like an allergic reaction. So describe what they would see versus, mm. um, all the science behind it. So yeah, right. they would see yeah. some local redness and swelling, and it could be anaphylactic type, um, and then getting them involved, just like we can do things as technicians. As Jenny said, have those owners get some calipers. They're not expensive. I mean, gosh, I've got some plastic ones around. I probably have too many, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, teach them how to measure tumors and do body maps so that they can have an active involvement in their dog's care. Um, and then again, with the Sharpies, give them permission to draw on their dog, especially if they notice a new mass, they make an appointment to come in, circle it because if it's a mass cell tumor, it could disappear and yeah. or shrink. And you'd be like, wow, they circled this big old circle and we have this little itty bitty thing here. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so we know that with, if they were to do surgery, they should definitely focus on that big circle area, not just that itty bitty mass. Mm. So teaching them how to do all of those things is a great, great thing. And then I know we've talked about it a lot and I'm going to let Jenny take it away with our biggest caution for these guys. Caution of the week. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. So obviously chemotherapy safety, if chemotherapy is going to be indicated uh, for those patients, and we're going to address that um, in our final week, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then <laughs> really the other biggest clinical caution with these kids is going to be that systemic degranulation. Although it is rare, we don't see it a lot. When it does happen, it's, it's quite a scary incident. Uh, one of the patients that I've seen clinically do this was a, a Boston Terrier with about a four centimeter necrotic mass on the hawk. Um, mm -hmm. And as soon as we aspirated and we did pre-treat um, the patient had been pre-treated with, with diphenhydramine IM 20 minutes before the dose that I've always used. Um, and I think is printed is 2.2 mg per kg IM. Yep. Uh, but this patient, as soon as we aspirated it, uh, had general erythema hives became very tachycardic, uh, did respond to additional steroid treatment, but the sign or the, the, um, clinical, appearance that these patients can have when you aspirate a mass that degranulates is going to be referred to as the derrier sign. So this is that really widening erythema or redness kind of radiating out from the lesion um, to surrounding subcutaneous tissues. And sometimes it can have a wheeling, it kind of looks like it's kind of spinning um, and kind of growing outwards or, uh, appearance with those tumors as well. So watching for that degranulation, watching for additional masses to pop up. And then as always, um, any type of handling and administration safety, if chemotherapy is indicated. 
Yeah. And to kind of go along with that caution, I remember I was still a baby tech. Um, and this was at my general practice and, and we knew it was a mast cell tumor. Um, we had pre-treated and, um, you know, we were prepping for surgery and just handling it and doing the surgical prep, it started to degranulate. And so we had to like, the patient was already anesthetized and it was just this whole, like, holy crap, how do we stop this yeah. from happening and treating that degranulation while it was anesthetized? And I think that was the first time that I like really dealt with mast cell tumors. So of course I was like, holy crap, what is <laughs> happening? It's um, like an alien. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, hey. and like, of course, all the senior techs came to help with like doing the stuff they had to do. But I was like, okay, well, yeah. mast cell yeah. tumors don't mess with them. Yeah, so that, that's absolutely. Those aren't the ones that, you know, when somebody says, oh, it's a mast cell tumor that you walk over and squeeze. Um, and look don't, at, look, don't touch it don't just leave it be just like hang out yeah. um it, it it certainly can get you into a predicament don't go squeezing them yeah and yeah and this is too like like in like emergency or urgent care or general practice where like a patient comes in with anaphylaxis right like take a moment to really observe the patient obviously look for like a bee stinger you know like all that stuff but if you see a massy looking thing that looks like a big bump right and it's got that look to it absolutely make sure the got doctor it. knows because it could be a mast cell tumor that's made the patient look like an anaphylactic reaction Ab absolutely and, and those mast cell tumors don't have to just be on the skin right they can be right. intramuscular they can be intranasal they can be in these really weird locations so you nailed it yeah. Yvonne like if they see what looks like a systemic anaphylaxis, a mast cell tumor could certainly be the culprit. Yeah. Especially if they have like multiple of them, right? Like they have multiple anaphylactic reactions in a very short time frame. Like just absolutely yep. take a moment to really like step back and be like, maybe it's not them eating bumblebees all the time. Yeah. Although sky raisins could be the culprit. Um, but I mean, it's just one of those things, like, don't just assume, like really do your physical exam and, you know, sometimes you have to think outside of the box. Sometimes it really is the stuff in the box, but sometimes it's out of the box and you just gotta put all the pieces together. Yep. Put the puzzle pieces together. Absolutely. That's my tip of the week for you guys. And <laughs> physical exam, put the puzzle pieces together. <laughs> You also brought up surgery, which I don't even think that I mentioned that, uh, most surgeons know, most veterinarians know you don't use morphine in mast cell Ooh, tumor yeah. removal because it can stimulate histamine release. And so that's that is, uh, that's the no, no, <laughs> they, they will stick with any other drug other than that. Um, yeah. and so that's just a, also a tip of the week to <laughs> throw that in there. We'll back right. it up a few. <laughs> uh, and the last thing I, I wanted to mention, because uh, we didn't really touch on if the mass is giant, like you have a big mass and it's mm. ulcerated and it's bleeding, there's not a lot that you can do outside of surgical removal. Because remember, if those mast cells are degranulating, it's not just histamine, there's heparin and these guys bleed a lot. And so it is very hard if they're ulcerated to get them to stop bleeding. Yeah. Um, and it's just going to keep rupturing. So the sooner, those masses can be addressed with surgery, the better. And that's a, that's a, that's a quality of life thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
we don't want our patients to be walking around with a giant ulcerative mass. Like it, it can't feel good to have like racing heart and like all the, like, it just can't feel good. So, you know, yes, that's probably a grade three and horrible prognosis, but you know, if we could get the gross tumor off and, uh, they heal because we hope they heal. Right. Well, um, yeah. if there is any mast cell tumor or any mast cells left over that surgical site it's not going to heal so that's another indication that you have tumor cells left over is if you have a surgical site that's not closing um you you probably have tumor to tumor yeah which we've kind of probably all seen unfortunately (laughs) you've been in this field long enough you're like oh yeah that (laughs) those are one of those ones that present uh an interesting almost conundrum to the clinician so the oncologist because Mm -hmm. they if we start to see that that site is dehisting too often like it just not will not close will not heal and we know it's due to the mast cell tumors do we start prednisone at that time knowing it's going to delay healing do we start chemotherapy to start treating those mast cells knowing no, that not. not only will we delay healing because the rapidly dividing cells are the ones you kind of want to be growing, but you can also take out their immune system. And, and so they, have an, they have an open wound with almost no immune system. So I have honestly worked with a doctor where we did start chemotherapy because we were like, if those cells are still there, this is not going to heal, but we also concurrently did antibiotics. So mm, yeah, absolutely yeah. just started it just to make sure because the last thing we needed was having an infection at that site as well that we would then have to treat. So, um, and I believe we also started, I don't think we actually used prednisone. I think we used an NSAID uh, because we wanted to decrease the amount of inflammation if we could, mm. especially as we were, um, and Our I know that prednisone can do that, but we were like, we don't need to slow this healing down any more than we already are. So yeah. And, um, this is just a kind of a side thing. Cause you guys talked about like on the Hawk, right. And it's mm-hmm. nasty and disgusting. And, you know, th- there is that thought, like, cause, cause you do have to take a lot of tissue, like three to four centimeters. I mean, that's, that's like an inch mm-hmm. around. Right. And, and that's not something that we're getting on Hawks. You know, it, there is the thought process of like, do we amputate? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, that completely depends on what stage we're at, right? Because if we have lymph nodes already higher up that are involved or you've got it in the spleen or the liver. So that's why staging is very important. Absolutely. Yvonne, you are an oncology technician. (laughs) I've been listening to you guys for a couple weeks now. (laughs) And that's why I've had these conversations with clients too, right? Because like sometimes they'll start with us and then we're like, well, this is the stuff you have to deal with. So, and the biopsy (sighs) view, like the reason we didn't amputate the one for ours is because it was grade three. So we're like, oh, it's already, it's probably already in place. So an amputation is off the table because- we just assumed it. It was big. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, that is absolutely an option. Mass cell tumor just really likes to travel throughout the, the lymph system. So it can already go places that you didn't even know. And I, and I think that's a really good point to bring up to like the new techs that are listening to this, right? Like that may be why we don't offer amputation because 
it's probably involved somewhere else, right? And so, yeah, grade three sucks. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> We're like, dang it. But yeah, so mast cell tumors can do anything at once. It can be like, yeah, I'm good, 100% survival, or it could be like, mm, take out your entire system. And you cannot tell if it is a mast cell tumor by looking at it. No. At all. Yeah. That's the poopy thing. Like it's just, yeah. Unless you poked it and it starts doing wheels and things, then you could kind of tell. <laughs> Be like, what's know, the gnarliest I... mast cell tumor you've seen? That's what I was about to say. <laughs> I'm like, that's what we technicians want to know, right? <laughs> oh, there's some. I got, I know I have gross door. Like I have an absolutely horrific story because it was a human surgeon who put it when it was a, a, gosh, it was on the side of the thorax. And now for the question of the week, blood blood supply by putting rubber bands. And that's how they were going to remove the tumor. Oh my God. Girl, I wish I was kidding. It was so hot. I was like, what is this? I was like, how do you, how did he even do that? Dude, this poor dog. Yeah. Okay. That, well, we're done recording. I'm going to share with this story with these two ladies that that made me think of, because I don't want to share it on here, but (laughs) I, you know, some people, some people kill me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but sure, gnarly, let's do gnarly, gnarly mast cell tumor stories. Or if you want to, and you want to be positive, some amazing mast cell tumor stories. Like, yeah, you know, you could do. Oh, I like that too. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to be in positive mood, do your happy-go-lucky mast cell tumor story. If you want to do gnarly mast cell tumor, you you can do that too. (laughs) Also, if you can take pictures of your microscope and you get a really cool sample and you get to see that as a technician, like you know what that is, man, put, give us that picture too. Cause that's super cool. Yeah. Those are fun pictures. And just because, you know, if you do post a picture of an animal, just make sure you get permission to post a picture of an animal. That's why I said cells. <laughs> I know. I'm like, dude, just in case anybody's like, take, look at this. Just make sure you get order permission first. So, all right, ladies, anything else we want to touch on with mast cell tumors before we head out for the, for the week? No, I feel uh, like that's enough. Yeah, I think we covered it. <laughs> it's fine. All right. Um, well, you guys have a wonderful week. Thanks Danny and Jenny for joining us. And next week we're doing our safety, which is it's we're ending on safety but that's okay. Cause there's a lot of information. Um, and yeah, you guys keep getting your learn on and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. It's <laughs> fine. All right. Um, well you guys have a wonderful week. Thanks Danny and Jenny for joining us. And next week we're doing our safety, which is it's we're ending on safety but that's okay. Cause there's a lot of information. Um, and yeah, you guys keep getting your learn on and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, Bye. guys.
you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.